looking at the theme as to the means by which God delivered the people uh, from the land of bondage. We've already considered why he did it based upon the covenant relationship that he has with his people, that covenant promise that had to be fulfilled. Uh, We've been considering these last couple of times now the means by which uh, he delivered the folks, the nation of Israel, from the land of bondage. And two principal principal themes that are developed here. First of all, he delivered them by his power. Uh, And you can't read the book of Exodus without being absolutely impressed uh, with the magnificent, uh, omnipotent uh, demonstration of the power of God in delivering these people. Uh, It's, again, easy for us to read through this, I think, and not be impressed with what was really going on. Uh, Let's put that in the world of that day. Egypt, uh, at that time, was the strongest, most powerful nation on the face of the earth. Uh, There was no kingdom. We're here in that period of what we call the New Kingdom uh, of Egyptian history. It was the the climax, it was the apex uh, of Egyptian power and glory. No stronger nation on the face of God's earth than the Egyptians. Uh, And they were there holding these people in bondage. Uh, But when it was time for God to deliver and fulfill His promise... Uh, notwithstanding the extreme and immense power of the Egyptians, they were absolutely nothing uh, as far as God was concerned. Uh, Pharaoh was nothing. Uh, And the religion and all of that pantheistic and polytheistic religious system of the Egyptians was nothing uh, as far as the Lord was concerned. With that absolute power, and you see that emphasis then in Exodus, as God, with his strong arm, with his right hand, uh, delivered the people uh, from the land of bondage. Uh, The plagues, uh, just uh, so easy as it were, did God uh, demonstrate his superiority uh, over those forces, over the religious forces, uh, that uh, the deliverance, Uh, that could not be affected by Moses, that could not be affected by the gathering of the people and their collective strength. Uh, But when the Lord intervened, uh, there was deliverance. So a great emphasis there upon that theme of God's power. Now, the second uh, focus is upon the blood. God delivered them by the blood. And notwithstanding the covenant, notwithstanding the absolute power of God, there would be no... Deliverance, there would be no redemption of these people apart from the blood. Uh, And that certainly uh, is one of the most uh, well-developed themes uh, in the book of Exodus. And certainly as we come to chapter 12, we have uh, the first uh, real demonstration of this as we come to that Passover. Uh, So I want to say a few things this morning about the Passover uh, and the great lessons that this teaches us concerning Uh, concerning the blood. Now, again, I would like to, as we go through this, if we can just plug in, factor in, uh, all of the theology that we we understand concerning God's covenant dealings uh, with His people, you can't understand this book apart from its being a continuation and a development of God's covenant promise. And this is that which, in many ways, I believe, unites the entire 
the entire scripture together. Uh, and all of the historical material is a really a history then of that redemption, of that covenant redemption uh, that God has uh, initiated and that God uh, without fail carries through uh, in all of the affairs of the world. Uh, but we've had all of these covens. I know we've talked about them before, but there's the seed of the woman that uh, develops as it progresses to the seed of Abraham. And uh, we have these statements concerning the identity of who the Messiah is going to be in these covenant institutions. Uh, later on, we'll see the Davidic covenant that continues through this uh, to the seed of David. The seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, all the same individual, obviously. Uh, and each of these covenant manifestations are revealing to us uh, more and more concerning the identity of the only Redeemer of God's elect. We come to the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, and this Mosaic Covenant, this covenant with Israel, uh, is a part of that, but it is a theological interpretation, if you will. What we have in the Mosaic Covenant uh, is the... Uh, I, I like to look at it as the theological timeout, as it were. Here are all of these other covenants that are identifying who the Messiah is going to be. Uh, now, with Moses, we, uh, we back away, as it were. Uh, and in the Mosaic Covenant, we are going to have a description, a definition of what that Messiah is going to do, the work of the Messiah. And we have the institution, and not really even so much the institution, but the uh, important and detailed definition uh, of the Old Testament sacrifices. Uh, and as these Old Testament sacrifices and all of the other ceremonies and rigmarole that were surrounding the tabernacle that will be uh, developed in this book of Exodus, as that is given to us, it is defining for us uh, what the work of the Messiah is going to do. Uh, and it must be understood in those terms. Uh, we, we come to the book of Exodus here and we are faced with the Passover, and the Lord gives us very uh, important instructions concerning the nature of that blood sacrifice, of that blood atonement. We're going to have all of these animals that are then identified and used for the sacrificial system. Please, and uh, I emphasize this, we cannot interpret this in isolation. I can't interpret Exodus apart from Genesis. All right? It's important to keep that in mind. Uh, and I've touched on this before, I think. Uh, let, let's understand that Genesis was given to the same people uh, that Exodus was written to uh, in, in the canonical context. Uh, Genesis, written by Moses and given to the same people uh, that he gave Exodus. So I can't, I can't come and interpret the tabernacle stuff. I can't come and interpret the Leviticus stuff apart from the umbrella uh, theology, if you will, that has already been given to us in the book of Genesis. Uh, and here's the folly. Here is the absolute folly of that notion that in the Old Testament, uh, that God in this Mosaic dispensation, and, and you read what Schofield says here, that in the Mosaic covenant, uh, they have a rejection of the Abrahamic promise. And they set that aside and they come now and they say, we'll try it this way for a while. That is utter and total folly. Uh, and, and that's the kindest word that I can think of right now. Uh, to, to describe that particular notion. Uh, it is not that that is happening to Abraham and whatever, and now here comes Sinai and we'll try something else for a while in rejection of that. Please keep in mind that that whole thing about Abraham was written to these people uh, to whom Exodus and Leviticus was written. Uh, and so they could not, and if they had a lick of sense, 
All right, if they had a lick of sense, and I submit they did, uh, they would realize that these animal sacrifices then were not to be understood in a way independently of and in isolation from that seed of the woman that was going to be the reverser of the curse. Uh, here, here's Abraham justified by faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. That is the umbrella theological statement uh, that is to be uh, put over all of these statements concerning the sacrifice. Don't interpret this in isolation. So when we come to this Passover, uh, it is clear that God was giving this lesson in the Passover, uh, this institution of the Passover, as a visible lesson uh, as an object lesson uh, of the spiritual truths of what the Messiah, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Judah, uh, that one that would be Shiloh in the tribe of Judah, what that one was going to actually do in accomplishing uh, the deliverance from sin. This is an object lesson. It is not the reality. Uh, it, it, I, I've said this before, but I must emphasize it as we come to look at the sacrifices uh, in the Old Testament, they were designed by God to be nothing more than object lessons of the spiritual truths. Uh, they were not the reality. They pointed to the reality. Were there fools and unbelievers in Israel that did not look beyond the object lesson? Yes, there were. Uh, and they perished. Uh, and they perished. The same as there are fools and unbelievers in our day uh, that can't get beyond... Uh, the water of baptism as doing something in the regeneration of the soul. Do we blame God for that? Do we blame God for being unclear for that? Why did God give us that if He, you see? Uh, no, we understand that as being ignorance and unbelief. I submit to you that those Jews in the Old Testament that did not look beyond the sacrifices, that thought the blood of animals were that which was uh, to be the means of saving their souls, were unbelievers and they were fools. Uh, I don't blame God for not being clear. There were so many things, if we put this in the whole context, where God was making it very clear that our sacrifice, that the, that the dealing of sin is not in the animal blood. Uh, this is just that which points uh, to the reality, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. There was a built-in obsolescence. There was a built-in obsolescence. The very fact that we're going to see this Passover and all the others to be repeated over and over and over again. Uh, the, the very fact of their repetition uh, was part of the message, people, that this is not what's doing it. All right, this is not what's doing it. Uh, it this is pointing to the to the reality that one day uh, that one day will come. And when the reality came, then we don't do it over and over again. Uh, there's the once and for all sacrifice. So the very repetition of it uh, that God demanded was part of the message that this is nothing more than an object lesson uh, that was designed to teach the spiritual truths. But what spiritual truths? Uh, are, are here reflected, uh, particularly in this, uh, in this Passover. And it points to Christ. All right? It points to Christ as, uh, as a typical prophecy, as a picture prophecy. Uh, the New Testament makes this explicitly clear when Paul identifies Christ as our Passover that was sacrificed for us. Uh, even if I didn't have the spiritual acumen to see that in uh, the Old Testament, and we ought to be able to have that, uh, Paul puts it beyond all question when he tells us uh, that this Passover was Christ. It pictures Christ. So what does it teach us? Uh, what does it teach us about Christ? Now, I know I preach uh, from this passage uh, probably more than once in my, uh, in my career. It's one of my favorite texts. Uh, and, and it's a great, great lesson 
uh, as to what the nature of the sacrifice is all about. So let me just suggest some things here uh, from this text that uh, while it instructs us as well concerning that historic event, uh, the lessons that it teaches us are just as relevant and just as applicable for us because it is pointing to what the Lord Jesus Christ uh, has done for his people. Now, as I look at the Passover, the first thing that I uh, that I see here, uh, get various lessons that it gives to us. Uh, it's a lesson in sovereign grace. It's a lesson in sovereign grace. We come here uh, on this Passover night uh, to the climax of uh, this whole series of plagues. Uh, we've had all of these things that God has done in demonstration of His power. Uh, and now we come to this last one. Uh, and the, uh, the situation is set. Moses gives the warning here. Uh, that the firstborn in the land are going to die unless unless there is the covering of the blood upon each of those households. Uh, and the firstborn died that night. There were many, many that died that night. Uh, and there were some that didn't die. And, and, and that itself, uh, I think, gives us a, a very important lesson concerning the gospel. Uh, there were many that died. And there were many that lived. Now the question then is why did some die? And why did some live? Uh, it wasn't because, and we've emphasized this already, it wasn't because Israel was of any particular worth. It wasn't because that Israel was a bunch of persecuted saints there. Uh, and, and I hope you don't have that impression of the captivity and the bondage of Israel. They were not there as persecuted worshippers of the one true and living God. Uh, the bulk of them were pagans. And the bulk of them were idolaters. And the bulk of them were worshipping the same gods that the Egyptians were worshipping. It was not because they were righteous uh, that God delivered them. Uh, but God, in His grace, put that difference between the Egyptians and the Israelites. It was simply and purely a matter of grace. Uh, and we can extend that grace back to Abraham, if you like. We can extend that grace back to their forefathers that God was giving them grace because, and there's a truth there, but why did God give Abraham grace? We're just taking the problem back a further notch. Uh, and Abraham was a pagan. And Joshua makes that clear in chapter 24 or so of, of his book, uh, that Abraham was nothing but a pagan, uh, worshiping the same gods that all of the other heathens of Mesopotamia were worshiping. I, I, I get concerned sometimes at this romanticism uh, that sometimes influences the way we interpret the Scripture. Uh, I, I don't know how many times I've heard Abraham's uh, call explained. Here's Abraham in Ur of the Chaldees, this place of paganism, this place of, uh, this place of idolatry. But there he was in the midst of that place, worshiping Jehovah. Uh, and, and God saw his faithfulness and, and, and God brought him out. That's utter and total folly. Uh, read your Bible. When Abraham was Ur, in Ur of the Chaldees, he was worshipping Nana, and he was worshipping Nintu, and he was worshipping Sin. He was worshipping all of the same astronomical gods that everybody else in Babylon was worshipping. Uh, he was no righteous man uh, until God called him. Until God called him. Uh, and that made the difference. That made the difference. Uh, it, it was not because of his righteousness, and, I, and, I, and I've heard, you know, and, and I've heard that the whole captivity and the bondage of, uh, of Israel explained the same way. Uh, that here is 
the church, as it were, in, in Egypt, and they're under persecution, uh, and they're being uh, and and they're being uh, buffeted here for righteousness' sake. On the contrary, on the contrary, the Israelites were not righteous. Uh, there was a remnant there, thankfully, as there always has been. Uh, but the bulk of the nation was nothing but idolaters. They were saved because of grace, not because they deserved it, but because God was gracious uh, to them. So that. I think certainly stands uh, very much on the surface uh, of this whole Passover situation. And the Passover then is to be a reminder then of grace, uh, as this Passover celebration was to be uh, made then year after year. Uh, one of the things that it was to declare to those people that, uh, that uh, participated was this is a remembrance of grace. Uh, now, uh, I'll make a point on this again when I come to the end of this discussion. Uh, but there is a very real sense uh, in which this Passover is linked to the sacrament in the church uh, of the Lord's Supper. Uh, the, the Passover was a commemoration uh, of what the Lord had done in delivering His people. Uh, our celebration of the communion table uh, is in commemoration of what the Lord has done, in part a commemoration, a memorial. Uh, of what Christ has done uh, in behalf of His people. And just as that Passover was a, uh, a, a yearly declaration and a yearly reminder uh, of the grace of God to these people, so then every time we take the sacrament, uh, part of what we remember uh, is the evidence and the manifestation to us uh, of that free and sovereign grace. What gives us the right uh, to come to that table? Uh, it is nothing but uh, the fact that we have been saved by grace. And that's again a connection that the Apostle Paul makes uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. All right, the second great lesson uh, that I see in this uh, Passover chapter is what it teaches us concerning the very nature of a substitutionary atonement. A substitutionary atonement. Uh, we, we argue that Christ was our substitute, that he died. Uh, in our place. That was a vital part of the whole ceremonial system. God was teaching these people uh, through this very visible object lesson that if you are to be saved, if you are to have fellowship with me, uh, having sinned, uh, then something, the Savior, as it were, must come outside of yourself. Uh, there's nothing that you can do to save yourself. There's nothing that you can do to atone for sin. There's nothing that you can do uh, to expiate your sin, to propitiate the wrath of God. That atonement must come outside of yourself. The very fact, then, that God was picturing uh, and telling the people to find this animal uh, was a very vivid lesson in the necessity of a substitutionary or a vicarious atonement. Now, this lamb was an obvious substitute. You look at verse 12, and in this particular context, in this particular illustration, uh, our attention is on the firstborn. It's on the firstborn. Uh, Exodus 12:12. 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. Uh, I am the Lord, and the blood shall be a uh, to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Our, here was the sentence that was placed upon the firstborn. Uh, 
And the only thing that would spare the life of the firstborn was when the blood was shed, uh, and that blood then was sprinkled upon the doorpost and the lintel. Uh, when the blood was there, then the firstborn was spared. I would submit to you that if there was anybody in the history of the world that could understand the nature of a substitutionary death that was the firstborn in Egypt that night, uh, they were the ones uh, that had the sentence uh, placed against them. Uh, normally, being the firstborn was what uh, was a position of honor, uh, but not that night. Uh, to be the firstborn in Egypt that night was no honorable thing. Uh, the death sentence uh, was placed upon you, uh, and you would die unless there was the substitute. There could be something that died in behalf of uh, the firstborn. And when that animal, then when that lamb was offered, uh, it became a very clear declaration of a substitutionary death uh, of an innocent victim, as we're going to see, uh, whose death meant the life of another. Because the animal died, then the firstborn lived. Uh, what a very obvious picture I say that is uh, of the necessity and the very nature of a substitutionary. Uh, of a substitutionary death. The basis of the life of that firstborn uh, was in the death of one outside of himself. Uh, and it doesn't, say, I, I say, take a great deal of understanding of the gospel uh, to see how vividly that portrays the gospel truth. We live because Christ died. Uh, it is his death in our behalf, in our place, uh, that is the foundation of the life that we enjoy spiritually. Because of his death, we live. And the Passover lamb was a very graphic and a very vivid picture uh, of that. Uh, the second thing uh, that I, I see here in this connection concerning the substitutionary atonement uh, is that the lamb was a perfect substitute. Uh, that substitute for sin must himself be free from sin. Uh, the one that offers himself as a sacrifice uh, can himself not be guilty of sin, otherwise his death could do nothing but deal with his own sin. Uh, had to be a perfect, had to be a perfect sacrifice, uh, a, a perfect victim. Well, you see those instructions given uh, at the opening now of chapter 12 as Moses gives the initial instructions as to what to do. Look at verse 5. Your lamb uh, shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep and, uh, or from the goats, and you shall keep it unto the fourteenth day of the same month. Uh, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it uh, in the evening. But you have to select a lamb that is without defect, a lamb that was without blemish. Any imperfections uh, in that lamb disqualified it uh, from being uh, the appropriate sacrifice. Uh, had to be perfect. Now, there's, again, so many things here uh, that when you plug this into the theological fulfillment uh, into the typical fulfillment, the prophetic declaration concerning Christ. Uh, it brings us to the very heart of the uh, mediatorial work of the Lord Jesus. Here is a lamb that was chosen. Uh, you had to choose the lamb. Uh, and, and how often have we uh, addressed in, in our confession and elsewhere concerning that, uh, that mediatorial election of the second person of the Holy Trinity? Uh, Isaiah refers to the second person, the Son, as the elect of God. Uh, that one that was chosen uh, to be the only redeemer uh, of God's elect. Uh, it, it's a wonderful thought. It boggles the mind. 
uh, takes us to that council of redemption uh, where in uh, that holy trinity, and I say this boggles my mind, uh, but the second person, the eternal Son, uh, was chosen, was the elect of God uh, to be the only redeemer of God's people. Uh, chosen. Well, here is that lamb that was chosen. I think it speaks to us. A lamb without blemish. Uh, Peter understood uh, the implication of this. And that classic, uh, that classic reference in 1 Peter, we're redeemed, uh, not with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but how? But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot, as of a lamb without blemish. Uh, Peter understood the implications of that. Uh, the absolute perfection uh, of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, the impeccable purity uh, of Christ, uh, who in himself had nothing uh, to do with sin. Uh, there was nothing in him that answered to sin. There was nothing in him associated with sin. Uh, he took uh, the likeness of sinful flesh. He came in a real humanity, but apart from sin, the pure of all of humanity. Uh, and I emphasize here, of all of humanity, uh, only the Lord Jesus Christ fit the requirements that were necessary uh, to be a substitutionary atonement for the sins of the rest uh, of humanity. Uh, without blemish, without spot, the absolute perfection uh, of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, and and I, again, I submit to you, I, I submit to you that all of this Old Testament uh, illustration. All of this Old Testament typology is well understood uh, by the uh, by the New Testament. We have over our pulpit uh, that declaration of John the Baptist when he saw the Lord Jesus Christ coming. Behold, the Lamb of God. Uh, you, you can't you can't interpret that statement uh, apart from Exodus, apart from Leviticus. All right, John was factoring in there, in that declaration, uh, all of the theological implications of what that Lamb of God was. Here is the sacrifice. Here is the one that is perfect. Here is the one that is chosen of God. Here is the only mediator between God and men. Here is that perfect sacrifice uh, that is the only means. Uh, crammed into that little word lamb when you see it in the New Testament. It's not just speaking of Christ as someone that was cute uh, and, and someone that was friendly. On the contrary, uh, it, plugged into that, factored into that, uh, is all of the theology of Passover, all of the theology of Leviticus, all of the theology of the tabernacle. Uh, New Testament understood well uh, all of this that uh, was being pictured. Uh, and it would behoove us uh, to do the same. Uh, what a beautiful description here then of Christ as the Lamb of God, His perfection. When you see that, when you read that, when you meditate upon it, it speaks of Christ as the chosen of God. It speaks of Christ as the absolute perfect one who lived a life uh, of absolute obedience, uh, demonstrating His righteousness as the one that was without spot and without blemish. That, I, I think, is highlighted here certainly. And I know I've touched on all this before with you. Uh, but, but you notice when the thing was chosen. Uh, you go back to verse 3. Uh, choose this animal on the tenth day of the month. And in verse 16, you kill it on the fourteenth day. Uh, it's chosen, it's kept, and then it's killed. Uh, 
Uh, and in that period of time between the choosing of the animal uh, and the slaying on the, of the animal, I think we have that time of examination, that time of proving. Uh, you go to your flock, and there is what looks to be the best of the flock. Uh, bring it apart. Now keep it separate uh, and, and just examine it. Make sure uh, that that lamb was without spot, without blemish. Make sure that there was nothing uh, that you couldn't see on the surface that now shows itself up. A period of scrutinizing, a period of examination between the choosing and the slaying of the lamb. Uh, I believe that what we have here. Uh, is that life of Christ. Why is it? You know, why is it we come to this Christmas celebration here, this time of Christmas, we think of the Incarnation, uh, and here is uh, the eternal Son of God becoming man, and He, he, he takes the form just of a little babe, uh, and, and, and He lives uh, that normal life, and uh, He dies when He's 30-odd years old. Why all of that life of Christ? Why all of that life of Christ? Uh, that life of Christ, I think, corresponds to this period of examination. There's the time of testing. There's the time of proving. There's the time of validation. There's the time of vindication uh, that this one indeed is the Lamb without spot, uh, without blemish. Uh, the whole life of Christ demonstrating, fulfilling the law. Remember, that law had to be satisfied, uh, but demonstrating that He did satisfy it as well. Uh, that he is then, as he hangs upon that cross, uh, as Peter declares, the lamb without spot and without blemish. The Passover speaks to us of the necessity then of a perfect sacrifice. Uh, it speaks of the necessity of a slain sacrifice. That this substitute for sin had to be slain. Uh, the necessity here, uh, if there is to be salvation, if there is to be redemption, uh, the necessity of death, and the necessity of the shedding of the blood. Uh, and both of those things are uh, visibly evidenced uh, in the Passover. Uh, the lamb had to be slain. The very fact that there was the death of the lamb uh, speaks of the execution of divine justice. You can see what the Lord says again in verse 12 that we read a moment ago. I will execute judgment or justice, uh, the Lord said. In Egypt that night, there was going to be the execution of justice. Uh, and the justice of God in the face of sin demands death. If there is sin, there must be death. And if there is not death because of sin, then God, whatever He is, is not a just God. Uh, justice demands that full payment, that absolute payment uh, of sin, which is death. The wages of sin is death. We've addressed this, I know, in our discussions of the law. Here is that law of God that demands a perfect and a total obedience, a perfect and a total righteousness. Uh, and if that doesn't come, then the penalty for that is death. And I, 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 I think we've observed this before. The, as, uh, as the penalty of, of, the, of, of sin is death, as the penalty of the broken law is death, I really don't believe that justice cares. If I can put it this way reverently, please. I really don't think that justice cares how that death comes. Uh, it, 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 it's the reality, it's the fact of death uh, that must occur if justice is to be satisfied. Uh, doesn't require, understand what I'm saying, it doesn't require the shedding of blood to satisfy justice. 
uh, it requires death. It requires death. Death is the wages of sin. And if this lamb then was to be uh, an atonement, justice had to be satisfied. And there had to be death. Uh, And the death then of the lamb was a great demonstration uh, that Christ had to die uh, to pay the full penalty of those that he represented. I think this is why Paul, uh, in speaking of the death of Christ in Colossians, in where is that? Chapter 2, I think, speaks there of the handwriting of ordinances uh, that was against us. Uh, the imagery there is an IOU. Here is the IOU uh, that we owe to God. And what is the debt that we owe to God? It's our death. It's the penalty that must be executed. Well, Christ took that debt. He took the IOU that we owe uh, upon Himself. But He had to die. But he had to die. Justice demands the payment uh, of that sin. So death of the lamb was necessary uh, as an execution of justice. But if the lamb was slain, if that's all that happened, if that is all that happened, there would be no deliverance. There would be no salvation. The death is a vital part, but the shedding of the blood And not just, and we're going to see this, and this is a very important truth, it is not just the shedding of the blood, but it is the manipulation, it is the use of the blood, it is the application of the blood that has been shed, uh, that is the deliverance and is the salvation for those uh, that are the recipients uh, of that application. The death had to come, but there had to be the shedding of the blood as well. Uh, the blood was shed, and this speaks of the uh, satisfaction of the wrath of God, the appeasement of God's wrath. It deals with the expiation of our sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no release. Uh, there's no redemption uh, from those sins. The blood had to be shed. And what a vivid lesson this is. What a vivid lesson this Passover was. Yes, there had to be death, but there had to be the shedding of the blood as well. Uh, and then that blood had to be applied upon, uh, upon the various uh, doorposts uh, and the various homes uh, of Israel. Apart from which, uh, there was going to be death. There was going to be the execution of justice that night in Egypt. There was going to be justice upon the firstborn either in the person of the firstborn or in the person of the substitute for the firstborn, the lamb. And there was going to be then deliverance by the shedding of the blood uh, and by then the uh, application of that. Uh, Now this gets into a controversy that I'm sure over these 20 odd years we've addressed more than once. I guess we probably have. Uh, There's a theological controversy that comes up from time to time uh, concerning the nature of the blood and its relationship to death. When the scripture speaks of blood, is that just metonymy for death? Uh, and it's just the death that's involved. The blood saves the death. Of, well, uh, I'm not going to get into all of the ins and the outs and the implications of that, but let's understand, please, uh, that there's no salvation apart from blood. There's no deliverance apart from blood. It's not, it is not just the death of Christ that saves. Uh, death in and of itself is not just the fact that he stopped breathing. All right, 
It's just not the stop fact that he stopped breathing. Uh, the death was necessary, but it was the death that involved the shedding of the blood that is the propitiation and that is the expiation uh, of the sin. And I say that the Passover uh, illustrates this very, very well. The lamb was slain, and I don't see the instruction here, now take the carcass of that lamb and put it over your door. Uh, it's not the fact of the death of that lamb, it's the blood. It is the blood that was shed, and it was the blood that was applied uh, that uh, was the salvation. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. What a vivid lesson uh, the Passover was here. And the application of the blood. There was much blood. I don't know how, I couldn't begin to tell you. I couldn't begin to tell you uh, how much blood was shed in Egypt that night. I don't know how many lambs uh, were slain in Egypt that night. We're told that every lamb for a family, if the family was small enough, you could combine and you know get a couple families. I don't know how many. I don't know how much blood was shed in Egypt that night, but I guarantee you there was a lot of blood shed in Egypt that night. But it wasn't just the fact of the shedding of blood. The fact that the blood was shed did not save one Egyptian firstborn. You see, the fact that that blood was shed uh, did not save anyone. It was the application of that blood uh, that was the salvation. The application of the blood. It is good. It is good that Jesus died, but it is not the fact of the death of Jesus. It is not just the simple historic fact of the salvation or, or of the death of Jesus that is salvation. It is the fact that Jesus died and that Jesus died for me and the personal application and the personal appropriation uh, of that blood uh, to my heart, to my life, to my sins. Uh, the blood applied, I say, a very vivid, a very vivid lesson. Uh, and one final statement that I'll make here and we'll have to come back uh, that I see about the substitute is that it worked. It was a successful substitute. A successful substitute. Uh, everywhere, the blood was spread. There was life. There was life. There was not one home. There was not one home in Egypt that night uh, that was covered with the blood that had a death of the firstborn. Every firstborn child awoke the next day for the blood was. It worked. It worked. It was the difference. The application of that blood was the difference between life and death. In every Egyptian home, in every Egyptian home, without blood, there was mourning. There was death. The firstborn died. And, and, and I see the, the, the widespread influence. Again, as I said the other week, I think, as I was giving my arguments for something or another, uh, that, that sentence was not just upon you know, the firstborn kid that was walking around the house. I think we sometimes, again, in the romanticism in which we tell the story, uh, see, see the firstborn just to be those that were, were, were living at home, as it were, in uh, toddlers or whatever. Well, it included them. Uh, but there's no age limit. All right? There was no age limit on that, uh, on that command. The firstborn, I don't care if he was... Uh, 80 years old and happened to be the firstborn uh, of his family. Uh, he died that night. Uh, and then that's one, one reason too, by the way. Uh, and I think this is the connection that I was arguing before. Uh, that's one reason that whoever the Pharaoh was, uh, whoever the Pharaoh was, he was not the firstborn. Uh, he was not the firstborn or Pharaoh would have been dead uh, the next morning as well. He was not exempt 
uh, in the house of Pharaoh we know was not exempt. Uh, but that's just by the way. Yeah. I don't want to read too much into this, but two things. In, in verse 3, a lamb for a house, and that, does that speak to household salvation? And, num- and number 2, and in verse 4, if it, if it does speak to household salvation, what was the bringing in of the neighbors for the sharing of a lamb with the neighbor? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to repeat your question. Okay. The uh, question has been asked concerning verse 3 and verse 4. Uh, verse 3 specifies that there be a, a lamb for a house. And then verse 4, uh, if, if families were not uh, lar- large enough, uh, then you could bring in your neighbor and one lamb would do for, for multiple families. Uh, and, and the question is, does verse 3 deal with what we refer to often as household salvation? Uh, my, my feeling is basically no. All right? Otherwise, verse 4 would not be there. Uh, I, I, I think from, from one standpoint, it's here simply a, a matter of expediency. Uh, we are going to be leaving the next day. All right? uh, no sense wasting. And I think it's very expedient. But the, the, the main point is even uh, if we want to see the household salvation stuff uh, idea, which I believe very, very strongly, and I think that was clear from my statements about baptism uh, earlier. Uh, the fact that even the neighbor, even if there was one lamb that was slain, the blood was put on all the households. All right? So the blood of that was still taken to each of the individual houses. So I don't know that I want to read too much of that uh, in there. I think there is uh, plenty other evidence where we can maintain that covenant promise to households and whatever. Okay, good. All right, well, our time is gone. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll go on. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we uh, do express our thanksgiving for all of your goodness to us. and We're thankful, Lord, that uh, we can read these Old Testament pictures and messages and uh, learn what it reveals still concerning the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So give us the faith, Lord, to look beyond the, uh, upon these animals. Uh, to see what they were designed by God to preach to those people and still then to preach to us, even though we don't uh, go through the mechanics of offering the sacrifices because our Christ has come. So teach us these lessons, Lord, and let us rejoice in grace, let us rejoice in the blood, uh, and live more and more in the reality of all the benefits that we have because of that. Now help us today, bless our time of worship, speak to us through the preaching of the Word, Uh, We pray, Lord, that the special music that will be offered today would be honoring unto our God. Uh, Make this a means of worship, uh, we pray uh, in Jesus' name. Amen.